This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Margaret Blair Young is an American writer and the president of the Congo Rising Corporation, a foundation focused on initiatives on the Democratic Republic of Congo, including film. She taught creative writing for 34 years at Brigham Young University in the U.S. She has published six novels and has two short story collections, as well as numerous essays. Two of her award-winning plays have been produced, as well as three documentary films she scripted and produced. She and the Congo Rising team were producers of the Congo-American film endeavor, Heart of Africa. I'm your host, Tara McCausland, and I'd like to welcome our listeners and a very warm welcome to our guest, Margaret. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with me today. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm thrilled to do it. And I was saying to Margaret before we started recording that I actually wasn't super familiar with all the awesome stuff that Margaret had been involved in. And so I got a little, I got a little shy, like, oh, I think I may have uh, (laughs) invited someone bigger than my little shoes. Um, But I honestly am thrilled to have you here. And it's, it's fair to say that you've done and seen quite a bit in your lifetime thus far. So can you think of an experience or two that you'd point to as hallmarks on your personal faith journey? There are really a lot. Uh, the truth is I'm in the middle of one right now where I suddenly realize what we're going to be doing. And I see that the path is already laid out and the people who need to be there are in place. This has happened and a number of times in my life where sometimes at a, at a time of uh, stupidity on my part uh, or a failure, I've I've been kind of pulled out because the people, everybody who needed to be there was in place. One the example that was the most stunning was back in oh 1978 in Guatemala. My father uh, is a Mayanist, was a Mayanist. He he passed away four years ago, and we were in different places in Guatemala. But I. I uh, didn't actually know how to get to where he was, but I decided I was going to make an effort. Uh, I needed to talk to him and telephone. We didn't have telephone service. So I went to Guatemala City, which was a three-hour drive by bus from where I stayed, and then uh, got on a bus headed to the place that I thought was pretty close to where he got. So I thought I'd be able to get there. Well, it was night by the time I got on that bus, and I didn't know what I didn't know. A woman got on the bus as well, Guatemalan woman. She started to put her bags on the opposite side and then looked at me and then came over and sat by me. And we started talking in Spanish. And and, uh, she said, where are you from in the United States? And I said, I'm from a state called Utah. And she said, are you a Mormon? And I said, yes, I am. And she said, oh, I am too. When I sat over there, I had the impression that I needed to talk to you where are you going? And I told her, and she said, oh, this bus will not get you there. You'll be way too far away, and there are not places for you to stay, so you're going to stay with me tonight. As it happens, my son works in the place where you're going to go, and he'll take you there. 
So I spent the night with her. She fed me. We had a wonderful talk. Her son took me to the, the place I needed to go the next morning. And I was with my dad, which was a, a really important time uh, for things that happened. That It was a time of revelation of some things that we needed to understand in order for our work to go forward. So very important meeting. And I needed those people to be in place, even though I did I had no idea on my own. And I've sort of compared that to uh, something that happened two years ago when I was coming. We had my husband had gotten my ticket from the Congo as inexpensively as, as possible. We're not rich people. We, we, we're professors. That's you don't get a lot of money as a professor. So uh, we had spent a, spent less than we normally would and gone through Turkish Air, which which routes through Belgium and then Newark, New Jersey, and then Salt Lake City. So I was in the Belgium airport, and this young man uh, looked like a businessman, and and he couldn't speak a word of English. In Belgium, that didn't matter, but it would shortly. So he came up to me and and asked where he needed to go. And I looked at his ticket, just the first part. I didn't realize what the second part said. And I said, oh, we're both going to Newark. Stay with me and I'll show you how to, how to do that. So what are you going to be doing in the United States? And he got this big smile. I'll, I'll say it in French and then, and then in English and said, je suis missionnaire de l'Église de Jésus-Christ des Saints des Derniers Jours. I am a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I grinned, recognizing the hand of God and said, well, I'm a member of that church. I will be your companion until you get there. And then we we learned that his next stop was Salt Lake City. He was headed to the MTC. Of course, at that point, he didn't have a missionary tag. So I had no way of knowing what he was going to be doing. And the, the flights were awful. We had cancellations, delays. Uh, the airport in Newark, I saw nobody who could speak French. Had he gone there without me, it just would have been so difficult. So I understood that God had put me in his path, just as this woman in Guatemala had been put in mine, sort of pay it forward thing. But that's, I, I've encountered things like that just over and over again in my life. So I've sort of come to understand, even when things go really badly, I no longer get depressed, uh, but just say, this must be preparing for something really interesting. I recognize just as I look back in retrospect, the design was laid out with, with the film that we're doing. We had planned on doing it with an American team. But when I took them to the Congo, they said, we can't do it here. There's no infrastructure. And, you know, they wanted to do it in South Africa. We actually looked at South Africa. I think it would have been a good movie then. But I did not understand the full picture of what we were actually doing. Because what we're trying to do with this film is not just to make a good film. We're, we're trying to launch the cinema industry in the Congo. So as I, I, I got to that through one failure after another, and then had a sense of what we're actually doing is this, that's going to build an industry for them. And they've already got the team. They're already ready to go. So let's do this. Well, I love that idea that you share of not getting too worked up about perceived failures or inconveniences or whatever you might call them, but seeing them as, as stepping stones to where the Lord needs you to be. I think that's wisdom from someone who's lived a lot of, a lot of life. <laughs> so thank you for sharing both of those experiences. Just satisfy my curiosity. What is a Mayanist? <laughs> oh, somebody who studies Maya. 
Uh, okay. My, my father, uh, his doctoral dissertation has a ridiculous title. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I can even remember it, but it's syntax in Mayan language. Mayan languages are spoken throughout Central America. We mostly think of the uh, Chichen Itza in the Yucatec Peninsula, where it's called Maya, but he actually taught missionaries to to speak different dialects of Mayan in Guatemala, which is uh, why I was with him. And by the way, when I was with him there in, in that area, I got to witness the conversion of an entire congregation. We actually, uh, my dad and I, and a wonderful man named John Bringhurst, who was a missionary at the time, were in a place called Julak. And uh, we, we were being hosted for breakfast. The people there didn't speak any Spanish at all. They spoke a, a dialect called Kikji. And uh, a young woman, teenage woman, came into where we were having breakfast and, and asked for a blessing. And Elder Bringhurst said, how did you know that we could give you a blessing? And she said, I don't know, my spirit said. And, and he said, are you sick? And she said, no, I just need a blessing. And so my father and John's book, excellent Kikji, uh, gave her a blessing. We then went to Catholic mass. We waited for them to do mass. And then the, the catechist who, who did the ceremony put the candles out and said, the Catholic church has brought us many wonderful things and we are grateful. But there's someone here with more to say. And then he turned the time over to Elder Bringhurst. Uh, we had a translation of I am a child of God in Kikchi and sang that uh, with the introduction to, to the whole community of, of, of what the gospel is. And then uh, years, you know, there were complications, of course, as there always are. But years, years later, I believe there are several stakes in that area now. Wow, that is super cool. Yeah, it is. It so is. You, it is you super come cool. from a super cool family, apparently, as well, not just being super cool by yourself. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think some people would say crazy and, and some would say, I, certainly my children at times would. <laughs> it's. Uh, I think sometimes they're synonymous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, sometimes. Um, well, moving on, what doctrine or gospel principle stands out to you as being key in your ability to remain faithful through some of your personal hardships? Because I, I know you've been through some hard things. If you don't mind sharing some of those and, and what's led you through. The hardest trials have, have been with child raising. Uh, we've, we've gone through addiction issues with one of my children. Uh, but the principles that are most significant to me in my life are patience and faith. Uh, and because of what I mentioned earlier, that I have been able to look back in retrospect and see how the Lord has laid out the path for me. Uh, and even at moments of a- absolute despair, I've understood that that it's not over and, and that God wins. Ultimately, God wins. Uh, my husband gave me a blessing during the time when, when we were, I, I was in despair, really. You know, it's not, I, I don't automatically say, well, this is all going to be peachy and every, everything will work out fine. Even if, if that, I believe that you still go through the pain. 
I asked for a blessing and he gave me a blessing that said the things you're going through now will be sanctified in your mind as you look back on them. And with this particular son, when I gave birth to him in 1991, uh, I remember I didn't have any any medication. I wanted it. I wanted to have that girl, but they, they couldn't, they, for whatever reason, they couldn't give it to me. And uh, I knew what was coming was the last push and looked at my husband and said, I don't want to do this. And he said, it's too late. <laughs> and then I delivered my son and screamed and, and uh, then it was done. And a couple of hours later, my husband and I were in, in another hospital room. Our little baby boy was in a crib beside us. And I had the most remarkable experience of reliving that birth without the pain of remembering exactly what had happened as this little boy had been born and just marveling at what I had participated in and just kept thinking over and over how beautiful, how beautiful. Uh, I've, I've thought of baptism as almost a vision of, of what life is, especially as, as we accept the gospel framework. Immersion in the water and workly brought out when we actually go through death, which of course baptism symbolizes, uh, it can be a long drawn out process, but I'm positive that as we look back on our lives, it will be a quick immersion and then we're out, we're back, we're, we're restored to a life with greater knowledge and light and, and understanding of what it's all been about. Oh, that's beautiful. I love, again, that concept of the Lord has a plan and to be patient with his plan and his timing. In my shorter lifetime, I'm, I'm coming to believe that that is true because I'm seeing more and more in the experiences of others that when we have faith, when we remember God's promises, God will bring us through and he always comes through. Yeah, but it, it takes time. So I love that. And things being sanctified in your mind, previous painful experiences can be, can be sanctifying. Yeah. later on in the future. So yeah. thank you again for sharing those things. Now, one thing that actually originally drew me to you and wanting to interview you was some posts that you had put on a, a Facebook group that both Margaret and I are a part of called Uplift. And I knew that, that uh, you had done quite a bit of work studying Black Mormon history. And so, um, as I had said in your bio, you produced historical novels, essays, documentaries, a play, um, and most recently, as uh, was also mentioned, a film in Democratic Republic of Congo, all to help tell the story of Black saints now and in the early church. So I'm excited to hear more about, again, that work that you've been doing, especially in the DR Congo. Um, but I wanted to touch on a couple of things first. A lot of people struggle with the history of the church when it comes to blacks and the priesthood and temple ban and duly so it's difficult stuff oh it is um what counsel would you give to those who are trying to faithfully navigate that difficult topic this is the point where i start speaking for my co-author who's black who joined the church in 1964 because he and i traveled to so many different places and I heard him bear his testimony so frequently that I really feel like I can use his words to say what he would say. But he, as my friend and my mentor, guided me through all of this. So before I say anything, I would just say, 
having the mentors and friends around you who help you understand things in the light of faith makes all the difference in the world. Ask and you shall find. If you ask in groups that are determined to destroy a testimony or to feed you all sorts of evidence that will strengthen your doubts instead of your faith, you will get what you what you are asking for. If you ask in faith, you will also get what you are asking for. Uh, I had a miraculous experience when I, multiple <laughs> amazing experiences when I got together with Darius Gray. Um, this is in 1998. I know exactly when it was because uh, we met at a conference where Eugene England, one of my dear friends and great heroes, and I were speaking on uh, race issues 20 years after the, the priesthood revelation. I had a recording of Darius Gray telling his conversion story, and I really wanted to meet him. And he came to that presentation and I actually had the tape in my purse. He had not been planning on coming, but then saw that two white people were going to talk about black issues and decided that he'd better go to see how badly we messed it up. After the presentation, he gave me a hug and said, you get it. Let's write a book. And that was when we started. We started our three, three books within a month and worked on those from, oh, I considered that we'd put in 20 years on everything that we were doing. I considered that our work kind of ended with the B1 celebration. Uh, we remain friends, we're in contact at least once a week. Uh, and he has been a wonderful help to my family, has given blessings to my children and has been just a, a support to all of us. But especially to me as dealing with the race issues, of course, we had to know everything that had been said in the past. We were hitting the big one. I consider that it was really the big one, the, the race issue. I had confronted racism as a seminary student when I was 14 uh, from my seminary teacher and I dropped out of seminary. Uh, I was persuaded by another seminary teacher that, that I should give it another chance. But I had heard real racism from people who I respected. And I soon learned to recognize it in places where I wouldn't have recognized it. And that was largely Darius's influence. But there was a time he knew I was reading the stuff, the, the things that had been said by past church leaders. Uh, and it was awful. It was just really difficult. And I, I'm in the middle of reading it and the phone rings and it's Darius. And he says, I just want to tell you, remember what I experienced. Don't let this get you down. And then he told me the story of his conversion. He didn't find out about the priesthood restriction until the night before his scheduled baptism and decided he wouldn't be baptized, but then took it in prayer to the Lord twice. And as he knelt the second time, a voice said, this is the restored gospel and you are to join. That was December 26th, 1964. So he's been a member since then. He sounds like a remarkable man, a remarkable man of faith. And I think a lot of us don't get it. And so when we're talking about this issue, what would you say then are a few pieces you could share that will help us get it, get the struggle and perhaps be able to get past that block in their testimony. And there are two things that we're looking at. One is how do we recognize racism in ourselves? Because we tend not to. We tend not to recognize one of the big terms is white privilege, but we, we tend not to recognize when that's going on. Sadly, I witnessed a miscarriage of justice in, in a Utah court where I heard a judge declare a young woman 
guilty in his court in a preliminary hearing, which of course is unthinkable. That should not happen. I filed a complaint against him. Would I have been aware of those issues if I hadn't gone through the 20 years with Darius and in the process of that learned the stories of the people that we were working with, not just the pioneers, but people who we got to know through all of this. And the stories broke my heart. They just broke my heart. They still do. That's part one. Then the other is if you're disturbed by things that were said in the past by church leaders, well, you should be. But part two, we are in the process of repenting. We in this particular nation, because of the way our nation was set up with the big compromise of allowing slavery, that meant that we were also predicting the Civil War. And the Civil War, things would have gone much differently if Lincoln had not been assassinated, but he was assassinated. And Andrew Johnson, who came after him, did not do things that would benefit Blacks. So if you go to Boston and look at some of the old church sites and the Black communities, you see that especially religious Blacks and and those who were becoming educated and pursuing political careers were doing amazing things. And then suddenly everything gets put back. We get the Jim Crow laws, which I also learned from Darius, from his own family. Darius's grandfather was born a slave. That's how close he was to the slave times. So as I got to know his family, I got to know that worldview, that what that's like. I can't have it entirely as something I absolutely know, but through my empathetic imagination, I'm able to feel it. And to let my heart break, that is so much of it, to let your heart break, including for the church leaders who who couldn't see beyond the cultural biases. And then we move on. Then we figure out a way to do better. I, I said recently that I see the Book of Mormon in its entirety, not particular verses, but in its entirety as a treatise against racism, ultimately, or tribalism. I think you can interchange those words, racism, tribalism. Ultimately, we have fourth Nephi, where you have no ites among them. They have learned to live together in complete harmony, and they can't bear to have anyone be poor. They can't bear to have anyone not have everything. They are living the gospel as it is intended to be lived. That's what the whole message leads us to, even through the scriptural verses that have been very hard this year in particular with, with some of the curriculum that has come out and then been recalled. It's kind of an exciting thing to see Elder Stevenson say that he was personally hurt and embarrassed when Emmanuel suggested that black skin was no longer a curse and reminded us that that idea of black skin being a curse, which by the way, is a very old idea, most of the people in the 19th century believed, that has infected the the way that race is perceived. And for him to say, I am so embarrassed that we have said this, and we're going to be sending emails to everybody to correct what is in the manual. Huge step. The priesthood essay, the last several paragraphs where things are disavowed, both the idea of Blacks were less valiant in the preexistence or the idea that they bear the mark of a curse, whether it's the curse of Cain or the curse of Ham, the church disavows those. So we are moving past the 19th century, and we're, we're not there yet. We, we have not crossed the finish line, not, not even close, but we're getting there. Good things are happening. I think we definitely have to, as members of the church, get used to the idea of fallibility 
oh, yes. in our leaders and how we are all products of our culture. Yeah. And as, as much as we would like to think we're not, <laughs> every era, every time in the history of the world, there have been things that were said and done that were wrong. And that I think, as you said, that we're repenting of where the church is still being restored, as yep. President Nelson has suggested. And sometimes people struggle with the idea that a leader could have said something racist and still be inspired. But the Lord works with broken things. And I think for myself, I'm grateful to know that in spite of Joseph Smith's weakness or Brigham Young's weakness, that he could still lead his church through them and that he can can work miracles through someone like me who is also very imperfect yeah so I appreciate all those points uh, I know living in white utopia <laughs> sometimes yeah. I call yeah. it here in St. George Utah that I don't get it and so learning how to recognize racism in myself and being able to extend compassion to all people of all races of all backgrounds is is what we are striving for Yes, as yes. disciples of Jesus Christ. And if the Book of Mormon is for our day, and if that, if I'm right, that that's the ultimate message. If you do not get rid of tribalism, you will destroy yourselves. Then we've got to get there. Thank you for that. So you have been doing a lot of really remarkable work, I'll say, uh, in the DR Congo. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the other work that you're doing in addition to the film, uh, what you've learned working with the people there, and perhaps how you're seeing God God working in the lives of those people there. The one thing that is absolutely apparent to me is that God cares about Africa. Uh, I believe Elder Eyring said, the Lord is in a hurry in Africa, and he will compress time. We've done a number of humanitarian projects, some teaching book binding uh, because books don't last. And we're in an area where there was war just 16 years ago. Uh, the, the rural area where we work was in a war just 16 years ago. So I could still see buildings that had been bombed. Uh, it's maybe the most beautiful place I've ever seen in my life, but there are enormous problems with scarcity mentality, uh, a, a view that sees the next 24 hours, but can't really plan for the next five years. And these are the sorts of things where you can't come in and save it. You come in and support. You help them figure out what they can do. Uh, we have had lots of failures in the things that we've tried to do. We've sent materials over there that have never arrived because of the corruption issues that are there. So one of the big things was just figuring out what works. And as we started doing the film, as we redirected, uh, basically, I had to change my model, what I thought I was supposed to be doing, uh, change it from, we'll take an American team over there and make a, a, a movie about this remarkable young man who I knew when he was a missionary, because he was the companion to young men that my husband and I had had in, in the MTC when he was in a branch presidency, uh, to just scrap that idea which is a story I, I, I don't really feel I need to tell, but, I, but I'll just maybe mention the one thing that I've spoken of a little bit, that when everything fell apart with the American team, I was in the temple the next day as, as an ordinance worker and had the most amazing experience. 
because it was everything had fallen apart and we had put everything into this. I, I had devoted years at this point to this project and it all in one day it all came apart. And there in the temple, I wasn't I wasn't upset. It was I recognized that something was happening while I was in the temple. As I tried to describe it to myself, it was like I was being anointed with gratitude. And my whole emotions were be thankful within myself, but also being given to me the sense of gratitude and the message, this is not finished. You don't understand what you've learned. I wasn't positioned to do what we ended up doing, which was much bigger than what we had intended, because I had already met the filmmaker who we used to make this film. I shouldn't say that we used him. We empowered him. We equipped him to do this. He had already started. He had already been moving on his own and with the team. And what we learned is in order for things to work, especially where there's a survival mentality, you have to have a functioning team where they're already working to support each other. They've already figured out how to not compete and accept corruption, bribery, uh, but to actually work for the benefit of all. And they were doing it. Uh, it was very interesting to me that this young man, without our proselytizing at all, also also joined the church, and that he was taught by the young man whose whose story we based this film on, who was a revolutionary before joining the church, um, and then had to choose between being a revolutionary or being a missionary, and chose to be a missionary. So, with in the process, another thing that we do is we take oral histories, and then we then we teach them how to bind their oral histories. So we had taken the oral histories of our director's parents. Fascinating stories. This was in Kinshasa, which is the capital of the DR Congo. And the mother had told us about being born in Loja, which was, I had not yet gone there, but I was scheduled to go there. That she was born in Loja to a woman who died in childbirth. It was a remarkable story. And then after this woman died, Celestine, our, our director's mother, was raised by an aunt. And then when she was 10 years old, was sent away to school. She hadn't seen the aunt in 40 years. I got to Loja, saw how beautiful it was. And then I said, we should have scenes from Loja in our film. So I told Chopin that we were going to have him come to Loja as well. And when you see the film, you'll see the gorgeous scenes of Loja. I'm eager for people to see what a beautiful place it is. Well, we had been told that the aunt lived in another place called Lomela. But when Chopin arrived in Loja, he got a call saying, your aunt is there. He had no idea that she was there. We were told where she lived. We went with Chopin. The roads are really bad, so you can't really take cars. So we rode motorcycles and arrived at the house. And it was the most amazing thing. They didn't speak the same language. She, she speaks a dialect that he doesn't speak. So we had a translator for this nephew and his great aunt. At one point, he turned to my brother and me and said, I can't tell you what I'm feeling. I'm very happy. Uh, later, he broke down as he realized what had happened. Well, then our job was to get the mother there, to reunite her with the woman who had raised her. And we did that. We did that in April and made a, made a we filmed it. We, we haven't made the documentary yet. But in, in all of that, because Lodge sometimes just frustrated me to death. There was, it was so hard to get anything done. But as I witnessed this reunion, and as I talked to my husband, and my husband said, what if that's all you did in Loja? What if all you did was reunite this family? And I said, well, that would be enough, wouldn't it? 
Well, the truth is, the thing that I'm in the middle of now happens in Loja. I could not have predicted how it would go, and I'm not going to talk about it except to say that I'm in the middle of realizing that a design is set up that we get to move forward in. That's just that is such an exciting thing to know. Oh, now I see what you're doing. Okay, let's move forward and see what comes of this. It's a web of miracles. I love it. (laughs) You've already told a bit about the premise of the film. Were you wanting to share any more about the film itself, the story behind the film? Well, I'll just I'll just tell a little bit. Uh, what you have to understand to understand why we feel so strongly about this is that there is no cinema in the Congo. It may not seem that that would be the way to resolve poverty, but if you look at, for example, the depression in the United States, that's when Charlie Chaplin hits his heyday because people need to have stories. And how much better to have their own stories than stories of, of another place. When we found this young man, and again, Emi Mbui, who is the young man who we based this film on, introduced me to Chopin Kabambi, our director. Uh, Chopin had already won an, won an award for a short film he had done. Uh, he had sent it online to a festival in Belgium, and it won. And so they actually flew him to Belgium, and I have the the recording of him accepting this award. He had never made a feature. And when we when we said, do you want to do this? We'll supply you with the cameras and the lighting. He was excited to do it. He was excited about the screenplay. We ended up collaborating on it so that he could adjust things so that they reflected his culture. When Chopin went to the National Institute of Arts with the idea that he wanted to make films, he talked to one of the professors there and the professor said, you can't make films. You have to be rich to make films. You're poor. Uh, And they had no film program. So Chopin carried a television with a VHS port in it every day to school. He didn't leave it there for fear that it would be stolen. But every day he carried this television several kilometers to school. And they would watch videotapes of films being made all over the world and start critiquing them. So he initiated the training. That professor who said, you can't do this, you're poor, plays the revolutionary leader in our film. And decided after the film, he said, this is going to work. And now I want to make a film. I want to make a film about corruption. There are other stories that we are in the middle of, of telling. The big thing is, I would say the cast numbers about between 50 and 70. So this young man, who's just in his 30s, did a feature for about $120,000 with all of these extras. We brought cameras, we brought lighting. His his wife, Deborah, when uh, she saw the camera that my brother brought to Dell, it was a black magic mini Ursa. She said to their little girl, Paxi, say goodbye to your daddy. He has a new baby now. This was a huge deal to have good cameras, to have good lighting, have computers that would do what they needed them to do. That was our job, all of us, not just me, my brother, me, our actors. We all took stuff over there and we left it, of course, because it is our intent to build the industry. We could not have found a better person than the person we found and his team. So that's, again, what I found out was my role was not to direct, not to be in charge, but to be a support what the Lord had in mind. So clearly the Lord's hand has been in the production of this film. And and I love that you had mentioned that the Lord loves Africa and that he's compressing time yeah. um, to make things happen there. Certainly, I think one of the most exciting things about being a member of the church at this time is 
watching how the Lord is accelerating his work. Yes. And we have an opportunity to be a part of that. And I think you're a great example of one who has simply been available to the Lord and he is using you as an instrument to do this great work. And he can do that with all of us. We don't have yeah. to be a great linguist or <laughs> a BYU professor that he, he can use all of us. We just have to be ready and willing and he will, he will bring us along for a remarkable ride. Yes. That's yes. what I get from hearing, hearing about the, the making of this film. So I'm excited about when this uh, is released. Can you tell us what the release date is? So in Congo, it's February 11th. Uh, and then in the United States, it's uh, the premiere is March 13th. And we're also at the LDS Film Festival and in the Pan-Africa Film Festival in Los Angeles, uh, LDS Film Festivals in Orem. The fun thing is watching what they're doing in the Congo, how they're publicizing this film and saying Congo cinema is coming. So it's, it is the announcement, not of our film, not just of our film, but of the industry. So it is, it's really an exciting thing to see what they're doing there. Very cool. Is there anything else that you wanted to speak to that had come to mind that I didn't ask a question to bring it out? I'll maybe just mention the idea of being available. When, when I was young, I knew I wanted to be a writer. The fantasy was that I would write and have books published. And that happened. And I, I felt disappointed. I thought, this is not that big a deal. This isn't changing anybody. This isn't making a, much of a difference. So there was a time in 1998, shortly before I met Darius, that I went to the temple and basically told the Lord I wanted something to do with my talents. Uh, that wasn't just trying to win awards or or get contracts to, for books. And my husband subsequently gave me a blessing without knowing about my prayer and said, you are going to be given something to do with your talents. And that continues. I Even in the Congo, because I was raised by my particular parents, by a father who loved other countries, loved languages, who taught me how to learn languages, and to be honest, um, who gave me some of his gift, uh, the gift of tongues, where I'm able to learn languages well. My dad was told that he had the gift of tongues when he received his patriarchal blessing. He was nine years old. He would never admit how many languages he spoke. He, he was always very shy about that because he understood that the gift is not given so that you can brag about it. It's given so that you can do your work better. Realizing that I'm able to live in third world countries without any problem, uh, that I'm able to learn the languages. I was equipped to do some work in the Congo, uh, particularly the Congo. When my husband and I were called to the MTC branch, we're uh, working with these young missionaries and then connecting to the Congo. I certainly could not have known what, what that was going to lead to. Uh, that It's been 10 years, more than 10 years, 14 years since we were in the MTC, but boy, am I in the Congo. I'm wanting to go to the Congo now too, listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> We'll do it. It's the bad thing. And this is actually, I'll, I'll mention that one of our big goals with the government of the Congo, uh, you know, we, we feel very strongly about getting rid of the perception of the Congo that says this is a very dangerous country. You read this, if, if you're planning on going to the Congo, you read the publicity about it and it's don't go to the Congo. There's Ebola, there's, there's, there's civil unrest, kidnappings. And you will immediately hear about all of that. Uh, the temple was dedicated on April 14th last year. 
2019, my brother and I were there at the dedication. Elder Renlund did it. And it was a beautiful thing. And I loved the way he described the Congo and the blessing he sought that peace would reign in the Congo. I believe in that. I believe that that temple is a marker that says time for Congo to awaken arise. And it and it's happening. So one of our big things is we want to show the beauty of it and the humanity of the people there who are glorious beings. I wanted to back up to what you were saying about that experience where you wanted to use your gifts and your talents for a purpose. And don't you think that, that that's really the impetus for all good things? I is do. that when we I have a desire yeah. to to be a tool in the Lord's hand. And when yeah. we are that intentional about asking the Lord that he will use us yeah. um, and our lives will be far more interesting, <laughs> but beyond that, uh, meaningful if we will just put our lives in the hands of the Lord. I don't know who said it, and you might be able to tell me that we live far below our privileges when it comes to uh, us receiving the gifts of the Spirit that we we can receive as members of the church. I, I think that was Brigham Young. It's it's okay. certainly it's one of the early church leaders, and I'm, yes. I'm not positive. Yeah, it's actually a quote that I've repeated a lot to myself as well. But then part two is to to recognize that God is in charge, that this is not about you. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. So, Margaret, my final question that I always ask, in, in the hardships that you've experienced in your life and some of the questions that may have come up, um, especially as you've delved into church history, why in all of this are you still rowing and choosing faith in the restored church of Jesus Christ? Well, for one thing, I, I left what I would call the tide pools, the very interesting things that you look at when right before a tidal wave comes, when the, the ocean pulls back in preparation. I've quit looking at, at the tide pools. I note things that are, you know, the controversies. I never delve into them. That's not who I am. I certainly became very well acquainted with them earlier on. I've chosen to have a life of faith. So I don't allow myself to get distracted by those. I did a, an essay for Mormon Scholars Testify where I talked about being a swimmer and that I, Joseph Smith said I, that he loved deep waters. I, I am in the deep waters and I continue to marvel at what God's doing. I'm in the places where I'm seeing miracle after miracle, really. Uh, I think you could probably see it anywhere, but the Lord is really moving in Africa. And so I see it all the time. Truth is, after my first visit there in 2014, I felt the presence of angels to such an extent that when I came back to the United States, my temple experience was changed because I was still feeling what I had felt in the Congo. I could feel the presence of angels much more than I had before. It did not last. I didn't continue feeling that presence, maybe two weeks. But there was something that I brought home with me from Africa, something divine and angelic that lets me know that we are in a work that is beyond anything we would come up with on our own. God does indeed love all of his children. Thank you for bearing testimony of that, particularly with your experience in the Congo. I think I can probably uh, speak for all the listeners, probably all going to want to go to the Congo now. <laughs> well, good. Then we've done our job. <laughs> we've done our job. Well, thank you so much uh, again for your time, for your faith, 
for the wisdom that you've shared today. I really appreciate it, Margaret. Thank you, Tara. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. The views expressed here are not necessarily the views of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, nor is this podcast affiliated with the church. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to receive updates on future episodes. You can submit comments or questions at stillrowing.com. We would love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.